a big thank you to all my patrons who support the Engineered Mind podcast. Hi and welcome to the Engineered Mind podcast. In this podcast, we cover topics such as engineering, artificial intelligence, neuroscience, and other interesting topics to educate, inspire, and engineer people's minds all around the world. I'm your host Yusuf and for this episode of the podcast I'm very happy to have Alex Tamkin on my show. Alex is a third year PhD student in computer science at Stanford, advised by Noah Goodman and part of the Stanford NLP group. His research area is machine learning, especially applied to natural language processing. Recently he has been thinking about curiosity, abstraction and transfer in unsupervised learning. In the past he has worked on projects in reinforcement learning, HCI and computational astronomy. Alex also spent time at Google Brain, Google Language and Google Civics. In this episode, Alex and I talked about life and work as a PhD student at Stanford, NLP research, the democratization of AI, explainable AI, hard coding values into AI systems, and we discussed the theory of one of his latest research papers using representation learning and much more. For updates on upcoming podcasts, projects and videos, make sure to follow me on Twitter as well as on Instagram. To join my weekly newsletter, engineeredmind.sh, where I share exclusive content, visit yusef.substack.com. And now, ladies and gentlemen, here's my great discussion with Alex Tamkin. So, Alex, welcome to my podcast. It's really a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Very exciting. So, as usual, we kick things off with you, Alex, giving us like a one-minute bio. Who are you? What are you actually doing in life? Yeah, so... Um I'm a PhD student in computer science at Stanford, and basically I study machine learning, uh, especially unsupervised learning and natural language processing, uh, with a sort of aim or interest in making AI systems more generally flexible uh, and uh, computationally efficient and easier to sort of understand and control. Uh, and in the past, I've sort of worked on a whole bunch of different things, including human-computer interaction, reinforcement learning, and I also did a... Uh, summer trying to detect exoplanets with uh, deep learning. Uh, and I'm also just kind of really interested in science communication, policy, societal impacts of AI, and uh, uh, just sort of um, better bridging like those different worlds. Mm, a lot of interest. I really like that. Um, can you talk about, uh, about your um, work as a PhD student or researcher? How, how is work as a PhD student or researcher? Um, what would you advise people who want to go into the same field as you are in? Um, if they want to do a PhD, for example? Yeah, I mean, I think, like, the PhD is a really great opportunity to just get, like, a sort of period of time where you can really go deep into a particular field or area, and you can, I think, just get, like, the, the level of depth in, uh, you know, understanding what are the core problems, uh, what are the solutions, what are the limitations, uh, is really, like, so different from uh, when you're just sort of taking classes. Uh, and sort of getting this material that's kind of very nicely packaged and, you know, all the homework problems have answers to them. And uh, I think, yeah, the PhD is super different because it's just the, uh, the wild, wild west uh, in that way. Uh, so it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty, I think, exciting in that way. So if you enjoy uh, that kind of uh, total unstructured uh, types of problems, uh, it's, it's super fun. Yeah. And I guess what a lot of people are interested in from the audience is, do you need a PhD to do AI research? What would you tell them? Yeah, I definitely don't think you need a PhD. Um, 
there's a sort of a bunch of different uh, companies or places where, you know, people have, uh, are doing great research with, you know, a bachelor's, master's, or even, uh, you know, not going to college. I think the, the, the PhD does, you know, tend to open up certain doors I've heard um, and gives you really good training uh, in order to sort of become an, an independent researcher in that way. But, um, you know, there's a, a lot of different paths to doing interesting work wherever you go. Mm -hmm. What I would be also interested in, I think it's also exciting for the audience to know, is you're working at Stanford. You're surrounded by, I would say, geniuses all the time, um, yourself included, of course. How do you handle that? Knowing people who are sometimes even smarter than you or appear to be smarter than you, how do you manage also work-life balance, which is like in in turn affected by this because you want to keep up with them somehow, but you also want to have like a private life. How do you manage that personally? Yeah, I think... One thing that is, is just sort of really uh, striking when you just join, you know, a seminar or a program is like all the different questions that people are asking and all the terms that people are throwing around that you don't know. And uh, I don't know, I think everyone has their, you know, uh, their own areas of knowledge, their own places that they're more comfortable in. And you, know, you get to a point where it's like, uh, it's sort of a benefit, right? Not, not a downside that, wow, like, you know, you know so much about this, like you can, you can teach me you know, I'll talk about this and, uh, you know, it's, it's, it, it's, a, it's a tough shift, right? When you come in and you just hear, you know, all these like questions and terminologies coming in that, that you, uh, <laughs> don't know what they mean, but I don't know. In the end, people are just human, right? And people are, 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 are kind and nice and, and willing to share. And, and I've definitely found, uh, uh, you know, that to be a real big positive, uh, even when there's these people who just know, you know, hundred million times more than me about particular things yeah um, um how do you personally manage that like uh, for example when it comes to work-life balance no matter if this term now exists or there's some controversy around it there are only work-life choices some people say um how do you personally manage that as a, as a researcher yeah i mean for me i think like at a certain point it's just like knowing uh myself and like at a certain point i just get to a point where i know i'm i'm <laughs> i'm not going to be able to do any more work for the day i need to you know draw or i need to you know go for a walk or, or call, call some friends and i don't know i really think that there's like a a a nice synergy between you know when you're most productive often and when you're sort of most like feeling healthy and and, and good and uh yeah for me it's just like i can't work you know 14 hour days nonstop, um, maybe before, you know, a, a deadline or something, but, um, yeah, I need to, to get out, get some fresh air, um, hang out with friends, cook, um, that sort of thing. So, yeah. yeah. That's super interesting. Do you think that all the activities you do around research, which also includes taking, uh, doing photography and mm -hmm. also, um, what was the other hobby? I forgot the English word for it. I'm sorry. Ceramics. Ceramics. Exactly. Um, Do you think that that also benefits you in terms of being a researcher to calm down, to, to ground yourself in some sense? I, yeah. I mean, I definitely think like, it's just like the best feeling in the world after typing on a laptop for a while to just like play with clay. Yeah. Right. And it's completely different type of like tactile experience and like type of thing you're optimizing for, you know, feels like it works a totally different part of like you know, the mind. And, and yeah, I don't know. It just feels like, 
I can't, I can't prove it, but it, I feel like it makes me sort of more creative in certain ways or, you know, I'll often have uh, some ideas when I'm, you know, on a photo shoot or, you know, working with, you know, making a big pot or something like that. Um, so, uh, yeah, no, no, no proof, but it definitely feels like it, you know, helps me, you know, take a step back, think about the bigger picture. Um, and, uh, I don't know, just like fun for, for its own sake. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Of course, it's not possible at the moment to do some kind of socializing, but do you think being involved in NLP research and socializing yourself helps you also to understand the theory of NLP a bit more? So that, say, by saying, maybe it sounds a bit uh, odd in the first place, but the more you socialize, the more you understand how language works and how you could possibly implement knowledge from real life into the NLP research. I definitely think like being exposed to a bunch of different people who think in different ways, who talk in different ways, who different uh, parts of the world or different cultures, like definitely makes you appreciate how certain assumptions you might have had about language just like totally don't, you know, pan out. Mm -hmm. um, just the, like, like some, you know, one really interesting phenomenon is how people have, uh, some languages have one word that in other languages are sort of very different uh, words. And, you know, just realizing that, wow, the word to know in English, like, that it could correspond to like, you know, two different kinds of knowing or even more in other languages. Like, I think that's sort of pretty, Uh, pretty fun and, and, and interesting and makes you think, oh, you know, I uh, maybe some theories I had about, you know, the type of cognitive skill that's needed for, you know, this type of language activity or this type of cognitive task is actually really different uh, than you might have thought initially. Yeah, that makes absolute sense. And one, one aspect we want to talk about also in this podcast is ethics, which we'll come to at a later point. But talking about NLP, there are these big models coming up or currently uh, super trendy, for example, DALI, if I pronounce it correctly, uh, GPT-3, which we all know about. Where do you see these big corporations like OpenAI working on these models, having access to a huge amount of data models, but also computing power? Do you see this as a kind of problem? For example, me as a small researcher, quote unquote, not being able to maybe access the API from OpenAI. Um, do you see that as a problem? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's kind of a really interesting shift that's happening where you have these developments of like, you know, these these much bigger, more ambitious projects that require a, a whole lot of compute and the, the outputs of these models can do some really uh, amazing and interesting things. But yeah, it, it does make it sort of less accessible in some ways. And I think it's, there's some really tough trade-offs, right? Because uh, these models are really powerful and they might have sort of side effects that, uh, or even just sort of uses or misuses that we're not aware of. And so maybe it makes sense to be a bit more careful before deploying them sort of the most broadly. But then on the other hand, you have this sort of whole access and fairness issue, which is like, you know, A, in order to understand these models, you know, researchers, uh, you know, not just from the huge institutions, but from all over need to be able to access them, to test them, to play with them, and then also to, uh, you know, develop and improve them. And so I think it's a, uh, Uh, it's a challenging balance and one that, you know, hopefully not just uh, individual institutions will make, but that sort of the scientific community as a whole will sort of have some way of uh, coming to a consensus about. But um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's not sort of a cut and dry issue. And it's, it's challenging. 
Yeah. Um, also, I saw in one of your tweets that you even mentioned, which was surprising for me because I'm, I'm not too much into NLP, is that actually OpenAI, for example, they are using quite not very new techniques. They're using established systems, but they're very good at data engineering or like engineering the systems itself. Yeah, I mean, I think I think one of the things that, you know, people think of when they think of AI is like modeling, right, where you sort of develop and come up with new models. But it's it's really only one, you know, picture of the types of like creative research that you can do. And I think, you know, the data in uh, is also sort of incredibly important and creative and, and a super valid uh, contribution. So it's, it's not that it's not a, uh, a creative or innovative research is incredibly so, but I think a lot of that creativity comes from sort of uh, means that people have, you know, uh, neglected a little bit. Um, and so I think, uh, yeah, the, the algorithms are sort of, uh, you know, especially for GPT-3, really similar to, you know, things that people have studied for uh, a fairly long while. Um, but uh, the types of properties that emerge, you know, at, at this sort of enormous scale, are quite different and that's pretty uh, pretty interesting yeah what also maybe comes with a scale maybe you know probably know way more than i do is that explainability becomes also a bit harder i would assume and with the models i would assume they're always biased i'm not sure how you see it but how would you explain such a system to make it explainable and make it transparent so that it makes maybe a wrong decision in the future understanding why it made that decision if it's now gpt3 for example writing an article for a magazine uh, which could be in the future. How do you see that? Yeah, I think that's one of the most sort of interesting questions of AI and, and actually just science in general for me, which is that we have these incredibly complex systems that are composed of millions or billions or trillions of interlocking, interacting parts. And somehow there's this really interesting emergent behavior that occurs. But, you know, how can you summarize or describe or create some sort of useful model of that, you know, incredible complexity such that, you know, it's, it's, it's useful to, to humans. You know, we, when we build complex systems, we generally start with this sort of like simple schema and maybe build out sort of complexity in a very regimented way. But a lot of natural systems aren't like this and maybe neural networks are pretty similar. And so I think, um, I think yeah, that's just a, a really challenging uh, and hard problem. Uh, especially when it comes to systems that are, you know, possibly going to be making important decisions about uh, resources, about, you know, uh, all sorts of things uh, in the world, which is what these systems might sort of start to become used for. So yeah, I think it's, it's an enormous challenge and there's a, a whole bunch of people working on different approaches, thinking about changes we can make to the training data, to the algorithm, to monitoring, but uh, I don't think there's really a silver bullet yet. So it's, um, you know, uh, an incredible area for, for future research for, you know, uh, people, you know, just because there's these humongous models and, and I can't build them doesn't mean that, you know, there, there, there needs to be a lot of innovation uh, in order to make these models useful, accessible, trustworthy, um, and actually like practically have impact and positive impact in the world. Yeah, I got it. Also, when it comes to maybe hard coding rules into the system, do you think that will be possible? Do you think even it makes sense? especially when we come to hard decisions, because let's say a decision in, in the US might be completely de decision um, as an average population of the average population in China or Europe. How would you tackle that? Yeah, that's enormously challenging too, uh, because you know, not only do cultures sort of have uh, differences and also sort of um, uh, countries, but 
there's incredible variation within different uh, societies. And um, I think in terms of hard coding, there's certain cases where, you know, uh, maybe le a bit less in NLP, but certainly in like, if you're making decisions about like healthcare, right? There's like very clear, you know, uh, guidelines or things that you can and, and can't do um, that maybe are a lot easier to program into some of these uh, systems that are making that might uh, at one point make medical decisions, but I think it becomes a lot, yeah, a lot more challenging. Just like you're saying, when you have these sort of complex and fuzzy terms uh, that have to do with like language and the way that language is presented, and how these computers interact with people, and what what fair interactions mean, and what respect means, um, it's it's uh, it's really challenging. I think when you try to hard code some of these things in. Yeah. Let's assume you, you would be an alchemist and you were looking for the Philosopher's Stone in NLP. What is like the Philosopher's Stone in NLP? What's like the, the, the biggest problem? Um, what would you say? There are so many, I guess, but what is like the, uh, the Philosopher's Stone? What would you say? Yeah, I mean, I think one generally really hard problem in AI is when you have a super complex and powerful system, how do you actually get it to do uh, what you want, right? Um, and... I think the really amazing thing is that humans, we make it look so easy. You know, if, if you and I are communicating and working together, um, then, you know, we can talk about our goals, the things that we want to do and accomplish in a project. And, you know, we can sort of align on like a core set of like values or, or a mission. Um, but that's really, really hard to do with these systems. You'll give them a, a data set, right? And they'll do really, really well on that data set, which you think has to do with, you know, Uh, understanding like, uh, uh, you know, reading comprehension or something like that. And then they'll go off into the world and the data will be a little bit different. To humans, it looks sort of very similar, but these systems will sort of crash and burn and, uh, and, and really do uh, uh, horribly. And so I think one of the really important, you know, <laughs> questions is when we have these humongous powerful systems, how do we uh, actually make sure that they're, uh, what they're doing is sort of in line with, uh, what we as, as humans want them to be doing. Yeah, also well, this podcast is of course, with you being in focus, why did you choose NLP in the first place? Is this like this this subconscious um, knowing that people are basically communicating by seeing, so with that, I mean computer vision, but also by talking, by communicating. Is it something you feel connected to in some sense? That's why you chose NLP in the first place? Yeah, I mean, I I think, you know, I think a lot of the fields are sort of uh, blending together a little bit in some in some ways because of the different uh, the same sort of tool. A lot of people are using similar tools in these different fields, and a lot of the similar questions are sort of coming up. But I think what's amazing about language is that it's just incredibly flexible. It's sort of the you know the communication between people. It's kind of like one of the the, the core fabrics that like societies are built on. You know. Human knowledge is like crystallized in language throughout generations. You know, it's. Uh, I think there's just a, a lot that's really interesting about language, about uh, meaning, uh, and about you know, uh, a lot of I think what makes us human. Um, so uh, yeah, I think, yeah, I think language is pretty cool. Yeah, and um, what is the latest paper you have worked on? Was it representation learning? Yeah, yeah. So I had a a, a paper recently that was on. Uh, how do we do representation learning in a domain agnostic way, uh, which we can get into a little bit. Yeah, more. sure. Maybe you can get started by explaining what is uh, representation learning even mean? Totally, totally, totally. <laughs> so 
Um, you can think about uh, one way to teach uh, a neural network is to give it a whole bunch of examples of like some sort of data and then some sort of uh, action or label that's associated with that data. So if you have a, a picture of an image, it might be like the breed of dog that's in that image. And then over time, you know, these networks with millions of examples learn to label the image with, uh, you know, the type of dog it is. Um, but, you know, humans, if we're sort of looking at a type of dog we've never seen before, we often don't need sort of millions of examples to learn that new dog. You know, we've seen, you know, we have all this prior knowledge about what dogs look like, what their kinds of ears and noses and faces and sort of spots look like um, from just looking at uh, um, seeing a whole bunch of different dogs in the wild and also just sort of our prior knowledge. And so uh, representation learning is sort of about how do we get these neural networks to look at a whole bunch of raw data in the world and pick out the sort of interesting patterns uh, that they see without any sort of human uh, feedback or knowledge uh, sort of initially, which means that it can be scaled up to millions or billions or even more of images. And then when you get a new data point, like uh, a new breed of dog that you see, you can leverage all of that prior context, all of that sort of knowledge about what dogs look like and ears and whatever, so that, you know, if you see another dog, even if it's sort of different, you can get the similarities um, and you can basically learn really quickly and efficiently. So you only need maybe a couple of examples or even one example, um, whereas previously you would have needed like a million. So, so that's the goal of, of representation, one of the goals of representation. Really. Yeah, how does the representation learning aspect fit into this whole concept of NLP? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so you can imagine, I just gave an example for images, but you can imagine for text also. Mm -hmm. There's just a huge amount of text, uh, you know, in all the books that have ever been written and in the internet and, um, there's, uh, you might hope that, you know, you could just get a machine to, to read all of Wikipedia, all of the, you know, uh, interesting knowledge in the internet and just soak it all up such that, you know, uh, if you have some other kind of language task, then the neural network would be able to learn it uh, really efficiently and quickly, uh, which might open up the doors to, you know, uh, using it uh, a lot more easily and not having to acquire, you know, tons of data um, that's sort of how it fits into NLP specifically. Mm. I think tons of data is a good point because how would you personally would love to see NLP being democratized or maybe let's take the example of Delhi again um, to make it accessible for let's say countries who are not that fortunate, people who don't have these like these huge machines or access to GPUs. How would you personally approach that or would love to see the way this is going to? Yeah, I mean, there's a couple of different things that you might see when you have sort of, you know, if you have a big model that's really safe uh, uh, to deploy sort of broadly, you could imagine, um, you know, uh, pressing it somehow and pruning it and making it so that it's super efficient and can run on, you know, a cell phone or something like that. Mm -hmm. That might be one approach so that everyone can sort of have that model um, on their phones or, you know, uh, um, even if you don't have a humongous you know, GPU or computing cluster. And the other way is to sort of make it accessible via some sort of API, where it, it runs on big machines somewhere else, but you know, just like you can uh, do uh, all sorts of things with your phone that don't require computing on your phone, you can maybe access and query the, the model that way. And then you know, the question is, how much does that cost? And um, you know, is, the, is it accessible you know, to people with a low internet connection and uh, there's a whole bunch of accessibility questions there. 
Yeah, got it. Uh, for, for jumping back to the paper, what was the uh, the initial idea of creating this paper, working on this paper of representation learning, and what was the outcome? Maybe you can go a little bit to depth here. Yeah, totally. So I guess one of these, these questions with representation learning is, what's the algorithm? Uh, how, what is the task that this sort of neural network is learning on if it's not getting human feedback or labels uh, during that process? Um, and so... Uh, there's a bunch of sort of recent successful algorithms um, to do representation learning for images, and they're sort of known as these like contrastive learning algorithms because they have to deal with the sort of contrast or relations between different images in the data set. Um, but the, there's a sort of core aspect of this algorithm, uh, which is the, the data augmentation, uh, which is sort of what, what you, know, you take an image and you modify it in two different ways. So you maybe flip one image and add, change the color a little bit and flip the other image and change the color in a different way and crop it. And so you get these sort of two different images and you sort of have to, the network has to tell that they're the same image, right? That's sort of a task. Um, and it works really well for images, but it sort of requires a whole lot of human design and manual sort of labor and expert knowledge in order to create these, uh, uh, what are known as augmentation functions or these view functions. It's another term for it. And so our thought was, well, one of the goals of representation learning is you want to do this broadly for any uh, kind of data, right? So maybe you care about images, you know, images of natural, uh, you know, of animals. Maybe someone else cares about satellite images. Maybe someone else cares about uh, audio or speech. Maybe someone else has a whole bunch of signals data. And so we wanted to come up with some sort of uh, a general approach that a wouldn't require a whole bunch of humans to sort of come up with and design these different uh, perturbation functions for how you sort of change the data, but also then would work not just for images, but for uh, any sort of possible uh, data more generally. Um, and so uh, what we did was rather than just having one neural network, uh, we have two. And this neural network takes in a data point and then learns sort of uh, challenging perturbation functions. So basically, it will output a messed up image, um, two different messed up images, mm -hmm. uh, and then this other network will have to tell that they're the same image. Um, and so it sort of generally learns over time to come up with more complex and interesting and challenging uh, corrections to the input image, um, which then sort of bootstraps uh, this network to sort of have to build better and better representations to you know, tell that a dog is still the same photo of a dog, even if it doesn't have his head or even if the color of the fur has changed a little bit, or even if you know there's uh, speckles or stripes in the background. Um, and uh, it turned out that it worked uh, really well across uh, sort of images, uh, audio, and the sort of wearable uh, signals data. Um, and so we were kind of excited about, you know, maybe uh, this can sort of be a step in the direction of more like domain agnostic representation learning methods. Got it. One example that comes into my head is uh, some th something overcoming like adversarial examples. Is this something where you can use your approach for? Yeah, that's a, a, a great uh, observation. And actually, we, we look at this a little bit. Um, so adversarial examples are obviously these sort of little uh, perturbations to the image, which totally uh, change the, uh, you know, the class prediction. Uh, so the neural network thinks that this perturbation totally changes the image, but humans sort of don't think that at all. And what we showed was that um, for uh, different types of corruptions, we didn't look at adversarial corruptions, but for 
you know, uh, different types of speckles or noise or changes in contrast, um, or if you sort of add like a glass blur to your image, um, that often the, the neural network trained with our, um, you know, approach can uh, be a bit more resistant to uh, those different kinds of unseen perturbations because that's exactly sort of what it's uh, doing. It's coming up with these uh, perturbations sort of uh, on the fly as you're sort of training and has maybe a much bigger, richer diversity of perturbations than if you were to sort of design them by hand. Mm, got it. When it comes to NLP, I'm not, I'm not very familiar with NLP itself. How would you measure the quality of a model? Because there are so many models, there are so many coming out. How do you measure a quality of an NLP model? And do you see a limit somewhere? Or is it like always being, always becoming a model out, which is better than the last one? What do you think? Yeah, that's a great question. I think that's actually a really important question in NLP right now, which is uh, how do you uh, measure uh, models? Um, because... I think it's multidimensional. If you just look at accuracy on some sort of you know, new data, you miss out on a whole bunch of other factors, um, right? Like maybe efficiency or yeah. fairness or the sort of, you know, how hungry it is for data. Um, and so uh, there's some people who are making benchmarks um, to sort of come up with different ways of measuring these models. And, you know, a popular one is this glue benchmark, which uh, is sort of a consortium of different NLP tasks and you sort of look at the average score of the model on a whole bunch of them. But um, I hope that we're going to sort of see uh, a bit more diversity in the kinds of ways we evaluate these, uh, these systems. Mm. Where would you like to see NLP going for a greater good? <laughs> yeah, I think I, I really want to see people care uh, maybe a little bit less about achieving uh, you know, state-of-the-art on... Uh, You know, these benchmarks and, and think about what, what are some other things that we're not measuring? What are some things that, you know, are maybe really impactful to uh, people's lives, to the ways that these systems might end up being deployed? Um, and uh, yeah, just like sort of dreaming bigger about the types of problems that we uh, might care about, right? Uh, and I think a lot of people are, are, are doing this right now. And I think it's sort of, sort of only going to get uh, more important, especially as these models get so big that they're hard to you know, for academics to, to discover ourselves. But um, yeah, I think really, really taking a step back and thinking about how are these models going to be uh, used in the world? What are the needs? What are these sort of, you know, features that we're not really thinking about right now, but that could really make a difference in terms of, uh, you know, societal impact one way or the other. Yeah. How do you see personally see that as a researcher? Do you think it makes sense either to be a generalist or more of a Of, a, of someone who is specialized in one field, let's say, you want to focus on NLP, but maybe it makes sense to learn more about neuroscience, psychology, ethics, philosophy. How is your approach here? Yeah, I mean, I think for the PhD, you really do need depth in uh, at least one area. Um, but I think breadth, you know, there's a sort of notion of like the T-shaped, you know, mm -hmm. uh, scientist where you have a sort of thin layer of, of, uh, of you know, broad-based understanding that covers a whole bunch of different areas. So then you have sort of the deep, uh, you know, you go really deep in one area. And there's also the sort of pie-shaped scientist where it's, you know, that, that thin layer that you sort of are interdisciplinary. And so you have sort of expertise in, in a whole bunch of, of different areas. And I think, you know, I guess I think of it more a bit like uh, stalactites, you know, those like 
uh, those rock formations that come sort of down from the surface where you sort of have a bunch of these different, you know, areas and yeah. in various amounts of depth and different projects maybe draw on, on, on different uh, pieces of expertise. And uh, I think that's sort of, you're probably a lot more likely to, you know, or at least I really enjoy that kind of fusion between, you know, the interesting ideas that come from, uh, you know, what happens when we ask this question in this particular domain? Or mm-hmm. why aren't we thinking about this here? Um, so yeah, that's, that's sort of what I feel about that. Yeah, if someone is interested in learning more about NLP, what resources would you generally recommend them? Maybe your top three, either if it's books, internet resources. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, the uh, CS224N is this sort of wonderful uh, deep learning course um, that's, uh, uh, you know, taught at Stanford. It was my, you know, introduction to uh, NLP um, and sort of Chris Manning has been um, really uh, uh awesome at sort of, you know, putting together a course that's both like, uh, steeped in like the, you know, uh, gives like deep background about NLP, but also sort of uh, up to date with like the latest methods. Um, Dan Adrasky, another, uh, uh, professor at Stanford has this really awesome textbook, which he's sort of just updating and putting, uh, on the web that also has to do with, um, NLP. And, um, yeah, I guess there's just sort of, uh, uh, those are, those are two that I think are, are, are really great. Yeah. Awesome. Um, do you think it's too late to jump on the AI train, if we call it that way? Uh, I think that, you know, we're just getting to the point where a bunch of the really interesting ideas and problems in AI are just becoming like really apparent and are, and are sort of, you know, emerging from being these sort of theoretical, you know, uh, problems that might, you know, happen one day and, and they're actually being really important and, and tractable, right? Like these sort of problems of, How do we get neural networks to you know, do what we want them to do? How do we get these neural networks to learn efficiently? What does fairness mean? What does controlling a model mean? What does understanding a model mean? Um, I mean, I think it's just like, uh, in some ways, the questions that are going to come up in the next, you know, maybe five or 10 years are maybe even more interesting than like the sort of questions in the last, you know, uh, last 10 years in AI. Mm-hmm. What is your personal wish? Where would you like to see yourself maybe five, maybe to 10 years um, in your research? What is your, your wish? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, it would be, uh, you know, great to try to pick one of these different areas and uh, really sort of uh, go deep into it and make sort of a, a series of like contributions, which, you know, maybe build up over time. And uh, I don't know which exactly one that's going to be um, because I think the field changes really fast but um yeah if i can sort of make a, a contribution that people uh you know find interesting and, and, and care about and, and can build off of i mean that i just like the best feeling as a as a scientist right <laughs> yeah um is there, is there some tips you would give to people getting started in nlp what would you think or what would you say are the biggest bottlenecks in nlp what is like very difficult in the beginning but once you get a hang of it then it works <sighs> yeah i mean i think i think it's kind of different for for everyone. Um, so I would say don't get discouraged. Um, <laughs> uh, I think for some people, you know, like, uh, like I think for me, the, the getting all the sort of details and the intuitions for how these like deep learning systems and neural network architectures actually work is, is really challenging in part, I think, because we don't really have good answers. And a lot of people build these sort of mental models of these systems uh, through trial and error. Um, so, you know, figuring out like, 
what, what to do with my, if my loss curve looks a certain way, you know, if it's very bumpy or jagged, um, I think that's kind of pretty challenging. Uh, and so maybe my advice would be if you can work with someone, uh, you know, who uh, has done it for a bit longer, um, you can maybe like Skillshare there. Um, so that would be, I think, uh, great. It's, you know, it's always great to, I think, work with people and learn from people. Um, I think another thing is um, if something feels hard or wrong or awkward, um, don't necessarily think that that's because, you know, you aren't just sort of good enough or there yet. Oftentimes that's because the thing really, you know, is hard or wrong or awkward and other people just learn to live with it, right? And so I think like really treasure that beginner's mindset where you can ask really simple questions uh, or questions sort of, you know, these like uh, established ways of, of doing things, but that are actually uh, sometimes really like piercing and uh, great. Awesome. So before we wrap things up, Alex, I have the question rampage prepared for you. <laughs> Ten questions and optimally you answer them in one word or one sentence or two sentences if you like. Mm, okay. And then at the end you can add anything else if you want or tell the audience. Mm -hmm. So question number one for you is what are you most proud of? Uh, I think it's sort of uh, trying to be like, you know, uh, a kind person, I guess. Like I think, you know, that's... Uh, Uh, that's something I, you know, strive for. Do you think it also has disadvantages? It it does. I think kind <laughs> does not mean naive. Uh, but um, yeah, I think I think uh, I think kind doesn't mean naive. But you know, okay, you can you can you can have both. <laughs> okay. Question number two: Who is your biggest inspiration? Ooh, I mean, my parents. Uh, yeah, they're just like as they've. Uh, are so so amazing and, and uh um yeah just like always are are both both amazing like you know parents but then also just like have such you know like we just go for it uh in their lives and uh, just a pretty pretty um, amazing models in that way yeah best mentor you ever had Ooh. um That's really hard. I think I think because I think mentors are really great in in different ways. Mm -hmm. um, but I think uh, uh, I had a, a high school teacher who was I think uh, a high school English teacher who was I think just pretty uh, amazing in the ways in which you know uh, yeah. mentoring and, and shaping. Yeah, that's great to hear. And um, next question: You win one hundred million dollars. What do you do first? Um, you, you cannot say I will train an NLP model. <laughs> um, I, I think I uh, spend a lot of time thinking about the most important problems, you know, uh, and the ways that are best to spend it. <laughs> that's a cat. That's a, that's an, uh, an awful answer, but uh, yeah. Okay. Next question is favorite operating system. Ooh. Uh, <laughs> Linux. Okay. One superpower you would like to have? Ooh, I think um, ability to teleport. This is cool. If you could spend one day with any celebrity, who would it be? Uh, Einstein. <laughs> Favorite programming language? Python. 
favorite AI framework? PyTorch. Okay. And the last question, what is the first question you would ask an AGI system? What's the answer to the most interesting question someone could ask you? This is a good one. I like it. Alexa, I really appreciate you being on my show. Is there anything else you would like to tell your audience where they can follow you? Of course, Twitter profile, I will put it down in the description. Anywhere else, maybe where can, they can find your beautiful art? <laughs> yeah, I have, uh, I have some of my uh, art and papers on my website, which is just uh, alextampkin.com. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah. <laughs> Great. Any last advice you would give people who want to delve into the field of, into AI and feel a bit overwhelmed? Yeah, I would just say like start small. You don't have to learn it all. You know, just uh, pick a you know a small project, maybe something that's like meaningful to you, and build the sort of simplest you know possible thing, and uh, that'll sort of be like a little bit of a, a kernel that you know you can sort of branch out from. Uh, and uh, yeah, I don't know. Things accumulate over time, so you know you don't have to go you know everywhere. Uh, in you know just like the first you know week or, or month that you start studying AI. Mm -hmm. Beautiful advice, Alex. I really much appreciate you being my show again, and uh, hopefully we'll see each other in the second part. Who knows in the future? And I wish you all the best in your research career, and uh, hopefully we'll see each other other soon. Thanks so much. This was great. Thanks awesome. for having me. Thank you.